This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. American kids don't have a constitutional right to a good education. A recent court case in Michigan underscored that fact. It's a problem, say our teachers, but maybe not for the reasons you think. Also, the Trump administration is rolling back Obama-era guidance on affirmative action in college admissions that has us asking, who is college for anyway? All that plus a unique summer edition of Kids These Days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned journalist, and I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who are on summer break right now. Let's introduce them. David Muhammad, what do you teach? Uh, I teach high school, international relations, and economics. Luann Fox, what do you teach? Hi, I teach high school English. And Maddie Burkemper, what do you teach? I taught fifth grade, and next year I will be teaching third All three of them are educators at public schools in the Kansas City metro area. Do American children have a constitutional right to a good education? A federal judge in Michigan recently said what amounts to no when he dismissed a class action lawsuit against the state of Michigan over the troubled Detroit school system. The plaintiffs argued that dismal conditions in many Detroit schools, things like overcrowded classrooms, a shortage of qualified teachers, a lack of basic resources like textbooks and pencils, All of that had combined to deny many Detroit students a fundamental access to literacy. That's the phrase that the lawsuit used. This lawsuit argued that these students had been left unprepared for life after school. But the judge ruled that this access to literacy was not, in fact, a fundamental right. Of course, the U.S. Constitution says nothing about public education, and the U.S. Supreme Court has refused, on several cases, to interpret one. So... What does it mean for American school kids that, at least legally, education is not a fundamental right? So for my teachers here, that might be kind of an abstract question, but I wanted to ask if you could try to define what it means for you and your kids that they do not have a right to a quality education guaranteed by the federal constitution. We'll get into the fact that that state constitutions address public education, but this, this idea that there's no federally recognized right to education does... Try to define that for us. What does that mean for you and your kids? Well, I, I would say it makes us very much behind. Be with me for a second here. You know, December 10, 1948, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was established. And this is universal, right? And Article 26 states that every human being has a right to education. Uh, and it clearly says, you know, everyone has a right to education. Everyone Education shall be free, at least in the elementary and fundamental stages. Elementary education shall be compulsory. Um, it goes on to talk about parent choice and things of that nature and full development of human personality. So this is a universal document that was established uh, to unite all countries. <laughs> I mean, so if we can agree to that, and then our, our country, which is supposed to be at the forefront of development and, and democracy and such, is still not establishing that on our level. I, I, make, I think it makes us very much behind. And, and even from an economic level, here we always hear politicians talking about, you know, pushing ourselves forward into the, the future and where we need to be. And you can't do that without education. So to me, it seems almost senseless 
that it's it's not established. I tr- I didn't know that it wasn't in the uh, Constitution because parents can get in trouble if their kids aren't going to school. So I don't I just don't I don't see why it's sh- it shouldn't even be a conversation. Like it just makes sense that for human development, education should be guaranteed, and it's going to hurt the the most uh, oppressed population first. Mm-hmm. Those kids who are already at risk for so many other elements of society. Now we're saying like they don't even necessarily deserve it. Um, they don't have a, when you say you don't have a right, that means you don't deserve it. And now you're looking at people being less than and othered. And, and I think that at least having it in our constitution will be a, a good safety net for human rights. Like this whole conversation shines another light on the same conversation, but at a different angle of how working and and interacting with oppressed or disenfranchised groups in America are systematically staying in that bucket. You know, like, so for me personally, the majority of my students are not white and they're, they're black or Hispanic or like black and brown bodies as the primary group of people that I'm educating in my school. And in the Detroit lawsuit or in school districts that are in our area where I know, like, I've seen those types of conditions in some of our area public schools, the primary population going to schools like that are non-white students. Knowing that the Constitution is not supporting the people affected by that reality, it's, it's seeing a place really tangibly in our system where, hey, we all see the impact that you don't have these textbooks, you don't have access to teachers, you don't have consistent principles and leadership in your school, and we aren't going to do anything about it because, guess what, we don't have to. It's and legal we discrimination. Care. We don't have yeah. to do anything about it because yeah. you're disenfranchised. And yeah. you know what? There's nothing in our system saying that you aren't. Right. right. Like, that's the most frustrating thing about it is that we all freaking, we see that they're just, dis- we see that these populations are disenfranchised. No one here is blind. The judge wasn't even blind in the case. He threw the case out, but he made statements saying these conditions are abysmal. It's appalling. appalling. However, he's he's not standing up to the system and saying, oh, these are are appalling. However, Mm -hmm. you don't have a case here. You're disenfranchised people. We don't, you don't have that. And, and that's, that's what it is. That's, sometimes it takes my Head a minute to like, but it's the same thing. It's it's the same conversation that we've been having on so many of these topics, which is when you look at the system like that's that's where it points. That's Mm -hmm. where it is. When when you don't have equity and access, um, I mean, it's just it's a tool of division. It's a way of saying to to some people, you're just not as worthy as other people, and that's just it, pure and simple. Yeah, and if. If you don't have it on something like the Constitution, right, like if it's not written down where it's mandated, then it leaves room open for people to just be their worst selves Mm -hmm. because, well, it's not it's not a law. So I can pretend that it doesn't exist or that you're crazy. You gaslight these communities and you're like. Well, yeah. I don't get it. Like, it's just we're, another, we're following all the laws. It's just another form of legal discrimination. I mm-hmm. mean, that's all it is. It's like, well, being that it's not mandated, sorry, like I can't do anything about it. I would, but I it, can't, you know, and it's like. Not even saying that I would, yeah. but I can't, but but literally being like, 
you not only are we not going to do anything, we're okay. Like you're the people that you need to fix it because right. not only like we don't have to and we shouldn't and, have to. When, it's not in it, the Constitution. When right. I think of landmark cases that have been fought about education, um, you think of a of like a Brown versus the Board of Education. You know. Separate and equal. Separate is not equal. When you think about Tinker versus Des Moines, and that dealt with uh, students' right to protest with the Vietnam War, with the armbands, and it's like those things are important. Those things become landmarks, and that's within education. But then the umbrella of, like, do you even have the right to that education? That's not something that we're going to talk about. That's just a that's horrible. Well, you know, the the uh, just to read a part of the lawsuit again in Michigan over the Detroit school system, which was managed by the state. That's why the state was sued. Um, the lawsuit read in part, quote, the abysmal conditions and appalling outcomes in plaintiffs schools are unprecedented. These are the plaintiffs speaking. Uh, and they would be unthinkable in schools serving predominantly white, affluent student populations. After the decision, a lawyer for the plaintiffs told the New York Times, quote, historically, ac- historically, access to literacy has been a tool to subordinate certain groups in certain communities and to keep those communities down, end quote. I mean, I, I hear those thoughts echoed in the frustrations that you're bringing up right now. Yeah, I think, mm-hmm. you know, Kyle, when you look at this, I mean, you can't not look at this and recognize that, like, the history of prejudice that's involved in this, right? Like, it's it goes to the most base level that there's people who inherently believe that they, because of their, whether it's the color of their skin or the wealth that they have, because we can't deny the fact that you have poor rural whites who have abysmal education levels as well mm-hmm. in this country. So it's some some of this is beyond race. A lot of it has to do with wealth. But there are people who feel like because I live in this tax bracket and my property values are this high, that I am inherently deserving to a better education and access and resources. And if everybody's treated the same, then why am I paying so much? Right? Like and so like I, I work in an environment like that where it's it's very silent elitism where mm-hmm. Because we pay this much money and live in this area and we have this kind of access, we deserve better. But and it won't be so silent because they can sue. And yeah. I think it's the fear of we know that the people who are powerful and who have more money will have right. the access but to resources to but sue. you're saying, Dave, like the, the, the people who live where yeah. you teach, when they, they, hear, they pay more taxes. And so they, they feel, feel like, they feel like they deserve it. And they and they and when they hear about these situations, they say, oh, that's really sad. But there's also part of them that's like, well, you know. That's like, what you get. That's kind of what and you maybe get. maybe you shouldn't live there. You shouldn't live there. <laughs> Do better. Work harder. Right. You know, they really truly see their wealth as we've worked harder, which I'm sure some of them have worked hard. But they don't see the generation wealth and all of that. You know, they see it as I'm better than he. I'm better than thee. And that's the very reason why if the public system goes down, they'll just run to the private schools. And it better be better than theirs. Yeah, because for that, for that better only happens. To, yeah, you can only have better if you're comparing it to something else. So how would yes. how would how would like, having a a federal right to education enshrined in the US Constitution and putting aside the very challenging political barriers to actually doing that, how would that change that situation? Having that right to education. Um, the situation that you're describing? Well, I think that what it does is it takes it to the human level. As, as a human being, you deserve certain things to to move you up in society. And like like you said, I mean, one, it's going to be very hard to have it. It's a whole other conversation of actually enacting it. We've seen what happened with Brownhurst Board of Education mm-hmm. when you do busing and things like that. People, you had white flight, you know, that happened. And those those kind of things you can't control. 
But it, it at the most base level, it lets our kids know that they matter. I don't know. I, I worked for a group called Youth Ambassadors this summer, and we spent the first two weeks, I was teaching in a locker room, like a locker room with no air conditioning. And these are kids from, like, the, the lowest income levels in the city. And you see how it makes them feel when they come in every day about themselves, like, well, why should I try this hard? You guys don't care about us. And when we move to a better building, their, their whole personality changed. You know, like, kids can feel that. They feel less than. They feel like they know when their teachers don't care. They know when they feel like their state doesn't care. They might not have the words to express it, but I'm going to fight because who cares? Like, I don't have any good books. Like, like my rooms are crappy. Like, you know, what's the point of me putting forth effort if you're not putting effort in me? So I think at the most base level, it'll let our kids know that they matter. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City's students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. A couple of college-related stories caught our eye this week. First, was the news that the Trump administration is rolling back Obama-era guidance on race-conscious college admissions policies, often referred to as affirmative action. Whereas the Obama administration had encouraged colleges to find ways to legally consider race in their admissions, the Trump administration wants colleges, especially elite colleges, to be race-neutral in their admissions. At the same time, a new report out from the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center shows that many college students are still struggling to complete a degree in a timely manner. More than a third of college students, according to this report, have not completed a degree after six years. And many students most affected by that trend are students of color and first-generation college students. These stories hitting on the same week got us to asking, who is college in America for? So... We have two high school teachers here, and we can uh, certainly get to Maddie as well, but uh, what are your students' attitudes towards college? Do some assume they'll go? Others have a harder time conceptualizing it? Do they see it for them? None of my students have a hard time conceptualizing it. They all believe they're going to go. In fact, they're fiercely competitive for grades and activities in high school, anything that they feel is going to pad their you know, their application, whatever. Um, they compete with each other. And when they do reach for the stars, um, they're crushed when they don't get it. And that's another thing that it's just, I know that's not exactly this issue, but but just the amount of like, oh my God, I did not get into like the dream school as though they don't, they don't you know, the, the the lifting them up from that is just, is exhausting. It makes you know? it, I mean, it seems like they, they feel like they are... Entitled. Maybe maybe entitled is, is exactly too like I can get entitled. into KU right. I can get into I can get into MU. That's State not schools, where. Yeah. yeah, I'm not focusing on that. I want to focus on here. And if I can't get in here, then I'm just like crushed because my other friends who were also top echelon people with money, blah blah, this and that. Maybe he got he you know he's here and she's here. And if I can't go join them, whatever, I'm just I'm just crushed because is that a, is that a, a a newer attitude? Absolutely. What, why is that? I mean, why, what, what, is, what has caused that change, that shift in mindset for students applying to college? I just think it's driven up higher. I just think the, the and especially since the crash after 08, I just think that's driven everything up higher. Like, I've got to be perfect. I've got to be wonderful. I've got to go over the top of what's normal in, to make it. And I don't know that we saw that so much before. 
you know, they, they've got they've got to do something that's just fabulous in order to be able to be okay and make it. Yeah. David, you also teach high school kids who are thinking about college. What, how do they? They con- know they're going. It's not even a question of like, mm-hmm. is you're going. You know, their family's expected. They've been told since day one they're going. They have the money to go. It's weird if a kid doesn't. You you asked about race. I think they don't necessarily think about it like that, but I think it definitely plays a role. When you see people who look like you, you know, doing things, certain things, you feel like that's what you're supposed to do, right? Like, there's a reason why a lot of young black males, like, you ask them what they want to be when they grow up and they say professional athlete or rapper, that's what they see, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, my kids Mm -hmm. see my dad's a doctor, my mom's a lawyer, you know, my brother went off to to this school my friends and all that's what they see so like it's fathomable it's t- it's mm-hmm. tangible it, and it's like the norm right so in so, thinking earlier about like the what we talked about in terms of like wanting to be better than each other and that constant pressure mm-hmm. to be better i was thinking how the, the the students of color i have i don't see this anxiety as much it's it's to, to david's point about like do my students know they're going to go to college yeah because they were told that from day one their parents have the money you know ditto that but i don't see my students of color freaking out about the actual college the getting to college is like check it we did it and that's good it's the white kids that want to be even better right because you know we want to reach for for mit and yale and if we can't do that if we can't get into our dream drama school or whatever life is over and i just yeah, that's the only population I see that in. But that's the population I have the most. And I yeah. say with with black kids, you know, especially those who are, you know, WB the boy called them the talented tenth. Those of us who are college bound, a lot of us are first generational college. Like I was the first one to go to college in my family, and really, I and graduate for sure. But there's a big celebration just getting there. It's like, whoa, we did it! Like we're here, but we don't know what to do when we're here because mm-hmm. we have nobody else around us who's done this. So it's yeah. just like getting there was like, whew. Now that you're there, it's like, I don't know where to go. Yeah, well, I mean, this speaks to the the study from the National Student Clearinghouse about the number of students who still do not, I mean, more than a third of students still do not have a degree after six years. I think we're still seeing this struggle for students to finish college. There is such a focus on trying to get to college or, you know, have your college entrance rates as a school or as a district be high. Mm -hmm. But then it doesn't seem like there are systems in place to shuttle them through once they're there. Yeah, when I was in college, I think the statistic was 17% of students of color who actually went to college would actually graduate. Mm. And I don't, that didn't say how many years, but just 17% of us would actually graduate. And when I graduated from Emporia, I, I think I was the only, maybe out of, out of the entire college, me and one other person that year of color graduated. So it's definitely lower. Who in? What would you say? So, I mean, I've been teaching for a while and there was certainly a time when all the parents Right, we're older than I was, and parents like kind of became around my age, and, and and now I'm to the point where I see parents that are, what you know, they're younger than I am. But when I see parents at, at like back to school nights or parent teacher conferences, and I have conversations with them, I'm always you know, uh, this is just a thing, right? Where they'll be like, you know, when I was in college, back when I was in college, I was able to get through in four years, and I could party, and I could join this fraternity or this sorority, and I could do this, and I could skip this class, and I could have a little tape recorder go or whatever, and 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 do it. And I think 
the kids of today, once they get to college and they, they know that about their parents because their parents have told them, go to college, it's the best time of your life, yada, yada, because they could do it in four years. I think our students are just not equipped to like handle everything that's mm-hmm. there. Like, how can I do what my parents did? Because my parents were able to handle things. But the demands placed on our kids are more, and I don't think our kids are adjusting up. So they're like, I don't know how to get in, fit, fit in all my partying and all oh, my parents, socializing. Just, the parents are adjusting either, right? I mean, like your your college experience should be like mine, yeah. right? And they, I don't think, I don't, I don't think that they see that college options have changed, uh, majors have broadened and and you know widened and everything. I mean, I just they just don't see that it's just it's a really a different yeah. world. Uh, Maddie, you are a teacher of elementary school kids. We do not want to exclude you from this conversation. <laughs> Um, I mean, do your young students think about college right now? Do you talk with them about it? Do they have any conception of it at this point? I would kind, I would get mixed response from my students. Some would give me a lot of pushback and say, I'm not going. And other students, like I, I really, it was all across the spectrum. Some people were a hard pass. Some people were like, oh, I've never thought of that before. And then asked me some more questions and showed interest. And I had one student who I love, who is awesome, and I was like, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she was like, um, oh, a pediatric surgeon. And I was like, that is awesome. And, like, what's your plan? And she had it, like, mapped out. Like, she was ready to go all across the board. I know that some elementary schools, um, particularly a lot of, well, this is just me drawing on personal experience. I don't have any stats backing me up. But almost all of the charter schools I've been to, especially ones that are, like, somehow affiliated with Teach for America graduates, a lot of them will, like, name their elementary classrooms, like, oh, you're the Harvard homeroom, or mm. you're the Dartmouth homeroom, or, like, the kindergartners have, like, college banners hanging above their desks. Those are charter schools that I've seen in primarily non-white neighborhoods trying to kind of help bring, like, the college culture in, like, right, like, the minute kids hit school doors like their first experience with education is being steeped in college awareness college culture we are college prep like do you find that i mean this is not your experience because you do not teach yeah. in one of these schools but I mean, what, what is your impression of, of that honestly approach? i kind of wanted to workshop that out because i i don't know like i don't i that's something i think about a lot being aware of the things that I'm hearing you two talk about a lot and knowing that I am I am working with a at-risk population um, of kids who, who don't think that they can or don't, don't know how to um, access these types of resources or they are first-generation college students or would be first-generation college students. But on the other hand, like they're eight. They're eight yeah. years old. So... It, it's a, it's just hard for my my mind to wrap around how to communicate that with such an undeveloped and de- maybe a better word that instead of undeveloped is such a developing human. Yeah. Well, you said you, know, you like, said some of your students are a hard pass when you ask them about college. Why are they a hard pass? Like why, like why do they they dismiss the idea? Um, I I honest like it's some of it might be disinterest when I've pushed. Like usually the conversation if they're a, a disinterested kid will go as follows. I'll walk up and they'll be working on something really hard. And what I'll try to do is I'll connect what the hard work could eventually result in. So I'm like, oh man, like I know that this long division is really, really killing you right now, but you know what? This is going to pay off so much when you are X. And I try and 
set that goal or help goal set with them. And so I'll say, this is really going to pay off when, you know, like it's 10 years from now and you're going to be sitting in your college algebra one class and you're going to be thinking about number patterns. And if you work hard on understanding this mathematical pattern right here on your desk, you are going to crush it. Like that's literally what I'll say to them. And some kids will say, I'm not going to college. I don't care about this math. So, I mean, it could be a lot of things. Like, I don't even know. Could you be like, I don't want to do this math. Right. (laughs) It could could literally be as simple as they just don't want to do the hard work at that moment. I'll say, what do you mean? Like, you're not going to go to, you have you never thought about it? And they just, they don't even, there's not a follow-up to them saying, I don't want to go or I'm not going to go. Like, they don't. They, there might be 10-year-olds out there in America, so I, I really don't want to generalize out too much, but the 10-year-olds I have talked to and tried to push that conversation with, they don't know how to say, oh, I haven't thought about it because no one in my family has gone and I'm from a wealth bracket that hmm. you know, doesn't usually go to college, and besides, I don't see other black boys going to college because only 17% of us graduate. Like Hmm. they don't, a 10 year old doesn't say that, you know, like the weight of that, like they don't get that in fifth grade. I'm like, dude, if you do not do your reading right now, you are getting to a point where this is ride or die. Like Mm -hmm. you don't get this. And I don't know how hard to punch that reality into a 10 year old's face. You know what I mean? And so, like, that's what I'm trying to – because on one hand, like, I need to. I know that I that, that I that that is something I need to do, but I don't always know how to do that. And then there's their parents. Like, yeah. so I'm, not, I'm so, not their parent. Like, maybe maybe they they don't want I – don't, I don't know how to handle that. I know I need to be doing something, but honestly, I don't know what to do. I think I'm – Maybe, yep. I, maybe I should call their parents and be like, hey, mm-hmm, I had this that. conversation with your kid today. Like, I just wanted to let you know that. I just want to let you know that this is their feelings of college right now. How do you want me to approach this? Like, is that a good thing for me to be doing? Because I honestly don't know. Because <laughs> to some extent, it feels a little bit weird that there are kindergartners in America who have Harvard signs over their desk. Does that? But, the, you know, but they need see, it? I just I don't know what to look, do with like, that. I can speak from my my experience. I think about it a lot. I was, man, I, I won the the birth lottery. I had two parents who were very hardworking, and saw the education system in Kansas City, Missouri, and moved me across state line to a good school district. And it, like, growing up, it was just I was surrounded by excellence. It became the norm. If you can, and so like. I remember watching Different World, and I was like, okay, I can go to college because I'm watching the Cosby show in a different world. Like, mm-hmm. And that's made me want to go to college, you know? And I know that's the same story for a lot of other people. But on top of that, I was going to school with a lot of kids who knew they were going to college, too. So I was like, well, if they're going, I guess I'm going, too. Right, like it just was so but if you can, implied. But if you can put a banner of the Kansas City Royals over a five-year-old's door or his favorite rapper or his favorite NBA team and give him a jersey, then you can put a Harvard banner yeah. over their door because because these kids who are in prayer village they see ku paraphernalia all throughout their house they see their dad's yeah. college certificates when they go to his office they see everywhere they go that's like that's what you're supposed to have no, they see the super, bumper stickers super. yeah they see the bump right. so it's like yes you know what we need more of that because it has to become cool for disenfranchised kids 
to be nerds. It has to become cool for them to want to be lawyers and doctors. I've got, like I talked about the summer program, there's a hundred and some odd kids, maybe 50 or 60 of them are boys. Every single one of them are saying they want to be professional athletes. And I told them, you have a better chance of being a lawyer than a professional athlete. But they don't see that, you know. Mm -hmm. So you have to do little corny things like that, like name a room after Harvard. Because then they might go home and look at what is Harvard. But, you know, Kyle, you're asking about affirmative action, right? Like, like, Yeah, I mean, like 20 minutes ago, yeah. No, (laughs) No. I'm thinking about affirmative action like this. Because when this, when this, uh, when I saw this in the news, I was really, I was pretty angry, you know, because there's so many misconceptions about affirmative action. This is a proven statistic. White women are the largest recipients of affirmative action in the United States. And they're some of the biggest uh, voices against it. And I, I'm like, you know, and I think that there's this mindset, like, if we give out too many scholarships, then, like, all the blacks and Mexicans are going to, like, catch up with everybody. Like, they're, they're gonna, there's going to be way more of them in college than everybody else, and then they're going to be way more successful. I'm sorry. One or two guys getting a college scholarship from a Harvard or Yale over you, Tommy, is not going to equal the playing field. You know what I mean? I think there's that fear. There's, like, the fear, like, like you mentioned, like, if you're, one of your students doesn't get into the elite school, then what happened? Like, I'm entitled to it. So then they look around and they see this black kid, and they say, well, he just got in because he was black. Like, like, what the heck? Like, first of all, you don't know his story. And second of all, if you didn't get in, why don't you just look at yourself, right? Like, stop trying to compare to them and and recognize that some people get certain things for varieties of reasons. And it's not going to make... There's a Me Too movement for a reason, right? Like, (laughs) we have still have a Me Too movement. We still have civil rights fight. We have a Black Lives Matter. So it's not like that we're going to win this competition i think it's these people who are well do your i mean luann and david you both work with student bodies that are mostly white i mean do your white students who are applying for college do they articulate those feelings of like they call it reverse racism so you you hear these thoughts from your kids yes they'll say that's not fair like that's like reverse racism that uh he got in just because you know he was latino or she got in just because she was you know this and i'm like a lot of conversations at thanksgiving or christmas for my family affirmative action is a fan favorite to like Mm -hmm. bring up and i always get pretty pretty heated like pretty fluffed up pretty i think that that fear that you're talking about is there i think it's layered under Mm -hmm. this idea of merit-based right people thinking that if affirmative action exists all of a sudden there are situations where someone who does have the merits to get in doesn't, and then someone who doesn't have the there's like an assumption that anyone getting affirmative action also doesn't have the merit right. to even deserve that spot in the first which place, which is so irrational, which is dumb, right? Like, first of all, you can have the merit to get a lot of things and not get it because there just might not be enough spots, right? Yeah. Like, I could have the merit to make it to the NBA, but sorry, there was only 15 spots on the team, right? Like, that's first yeah. first level. Second of all, it's assuming that as if the school is going and saying, well, we need a black guy right now. Let me just go off the street and yes. pick a random black guy yeah. and you're in because you're black. Yes. No, first of all, that black or that Latino or Asian or woman, they're still having to be pretty academically superior to a lot of people just to be mm-hmm. eligible. So now you're looking at eligibility like of candidates, all these this pool of candidates and they're saying, "Well, we're still this percent, you know, primarily. Let's try to diversify some." 
it's not like this kid wasn't mm-hmm. good enough. You don't get into Harvard or into an Ivy League or a top institution or even be eligible to do that if you're not, yeah. if it's not possible, you know. So it's not like these are just random people that are like, oh, we got to give a Latino a scholarship mm-hmm. now so we can, you know, this affirmative action stuff. Like, right. But, but privilege has never been able to recognize itself. Right. I mean, privilege does not, <laughs> privilege doesn't understand itself at all. The most effective argument I've found in trying to communicate, like our viewpoint, is coming at it from an angle of affirmative action isn't about, oh, we're going to help someone without merit. Right. It means mm-hmm. we're going to help someone who doesn't have an uncle who was a donor who was on the board who can help them get in. And so that I focus on like that part of of getting into college. I'm like, college is about merit, but like all of us at this table know it's not just about merit. I did not just get into college and send them my transcript. What I did was I had a a guidance counselor Mm -hmm. who knows personally the academics admissions person at my college, at my alma mater, and they would go out to lunch together. Mm -hmm. They would go out to lunch. They would hang out. They had their cell phone. They fed me to that admissions counselor and said, this girl is a great fit because Mm -hmm. I went to a private all-girls Catholic school in St. Louis who has decades of a relationship with these colleges. And guess what? One black girl at my school. That's why affirmative action needs to right. exist. It's not because it's not because they don't have merit. It's because yeah. they don't have a access. Lot, they don't have access, and they right. need to because don't we all agree? And then I pull it back to like larger moral, universal yeah. truths that my family knows. And then they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's da, just da, too da, bad da, we da. can't say that it's a constitutional right for education. I, and then <laughs> and then that yeah. all flows down to well, if they wanted to go to Koryezu, then they should have. Right, I'm yeah. like. Ah! <laughs> Uh, well, we'll we'll end it there. Um, maybe a conversation for a different day, Luann. I will say, I would still look askance at anyone hanging a KU banner over their door. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not going to go there. Before we do kids these days, let's give credit to our sponsor. This episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kaufman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control in what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you find us, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation you've heard today, subscribe, leave us a review. And keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, Maddie, you're making like the rock on <laughs> devil horns. What are you doing? Headbanging in the studio? I'm trying. Well, we didn't know that we were doing this. Segment. Oh, David didn't know either. I'm fine. I'm ready to start. Oh, I'm yeah. ready so much. I'm, I'm ready to go. Wait. Okay. I just said that we were wow. going to do that segment. I was just trying to help you. <laughs> but you gave me stuff that I couldn't read at all. You were like, Your <laughs> concert tonight. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. But that's not what Kinda. kids are doing these days. Kyle, we don't. I'm not interacting with kids right now. It's right. summertime. Okay, but I know what kids are. What are okay? What are what are teachers into for their summer? What are you doing this summer? Should I say the 30 day challenge? <laughs> yes, you should. No, yes. no, Maddie. Yes, 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 no, yes, Maddie. Yes, no, Maddie. Yes, yes, yes. No, Maddie. You should. She said this off mic. This is what Maddie's into. This is what we'll do. What's your 30 day challenge? Hey, you know what? This is where I'm at in my workout routine, and I'm proud of it. So, you guys want to hate on me? Then you can. Let's see this. 
Um, I'll even let David follow up with, I'm sorry, I'm not supposed to take very long on this. I'm into the 30-day challenge. Self-created 30-day challenge. This is self-created, trademark, it's in progress. The way that you do the 30-day challenge (laughs) is you do 30 push-ups, 30 sit-ups, a minute plank, and 15 of something you're good at. Yeah, I think... You know, more power to I've you, Maddie. I've been trying to complete it for 30 days in a row since April and haven't gotten to there yet. You could have left that last part off. Yeah, I sure. Oh, I'm proud of who I am, guys. Yeah. I mean, the, the larger context here is David is a oh my a, uh, a karate instructor, yeah, martial arts David, instructor, an, an, award, an award-winning martial arts instructor. What are, what are you into, I'm just a David? human being that can do more than... <laughs> hey, there's no judgment. This is a judgment-free hey, zone. Not, not judging. Not judging. Physical <laughs> exercise is not zero you sum. It. You're doing a good job. It's not <laughs> zero sum. Yeah, haven't we learned anything from the conversation? You're right. You're right. What are you into? All right. So, David, what no, are you into kids, this summer? Kids these days. I have kids these days. Oh, okay. Um, oh. I, I want to give a congratulations. Uh, we had three teenagers who got their black belts on Friday. They did a, a three-hour test um, that involved more than 30 push-ups. And uh, just really proud of them because they've all been training for... Um, at least four years or more, and um, it takes a lot of dedication to to do something like that. Especially, we talk about kids not being able to stay focused on things, and so really proud of all three of them. And yeah, good job. Good job, guys. Luann. So my kids these days um, are into having checked their AP scores. Yeah. Oh, so yes. the I've already gotten some emails from. Um, no, I haven't actually gotten any hate mail. I've gotten some congratulatory notes. Um, well, they were congratulating themselves, but then they were congratulating me too. Um, so um, I've got some happy uh, kids out there for sure. Um, I've got other kids I haven't met yet who I know are mm, putting off summer reading or doing summer reading because I'm going to get them next year. Um, other kids these days I know are swimming. Swimming pools are full, of course. It's so hot. Did you see the... Uh the recent story in the Washington Post about how uh, there are more um, like retirees who are who are being lifeguards now because there's a shortage of, of teenage lifeguards. Oh, wow. Because teenagers aren't working as much over the summer right. as as much as they used to because they're doing active organized right. activities, doing right. you know study. We things. talked about that on another Organiz- podcast, yeah. right? So I'm, yep. Wow. And so now there are more you know like 60, 70 year old lifeguards. That's who, interesting. Yeah, an interesting trend. Well, thanks to our teachers this week, Maddie Burkemper. Stay strong with the. <laughs> let us know if you complete the 30 day challenge. Next uh, time I come back. Yeah. Lou Ann Fox and, and David Muhammad, thanks as always to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 893 Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. And remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. <laughs>